Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Janine DeNoble Love to discuss her book, Cleveland Architecture, 1890 to 1930. Thanks for tuning in. At the turn of the 20th century, Cleveland became a model of what could be accomplished by a partnership between the city's wealthy and the local government to create an architecturally beautiful, livable industrial city. Inspired by the success of the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, with its classically inspired Beaux-Arts buildings, Cleveland developed an architectural and urban planning strategy over the next three decades which not only resulted in the Cleveland Group Plan for Public Buildings of 1903, but also inspired an additional quarter century of impressive city-beautiful buildings for all forms of public use. As Anne Trubeck puts it, Cleveland architecture, 1890-1930, is a stunning accomplishment. At once a history, an encyclopedia, and an analysis of the City Beautiful movement. The book contains startling original research and offers a comprehensive resource for anyone interested in Cleveland, architecture, or history. Gorgeously illustrated in a splendid hardcover format, this is a necessary book and a remarkable service to the city and to scholarship. I'm thrilled to have Janine DeNoble Love with us today to discuss Cleveland architecture. Janine is an independent art historian focusing on American art and architecture. She's worked at the Detroit Institute of Art and served as director of the Intermuseum Conservation Association, a regional art conservation center in Ohio. She's written on Frank Lloyd Wright and his collaborators and on John Lafarge's stained glass in Cleveland. Janine, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. I wonder if we could start with thinking about why you selected the city of Cleveland for this project and what the city looked like at the turn of the 20th century before the sort of renewal and, and re-envisioning projects that you describe got underway. Ah, well, the city of Cleveland was an inspiration, I think, for the simple reason that it had been ignored. We really hadn't seen much research on the city and particularly its architecture for, oh, for a couple decades. Things that were written were written some time ago and very often didn't hit on this particular period when the um, City Beautiful plan was enacted and um, spilled over into the other commercial buildings in the city that you had just mentioned. And that included things like banks, department stores, uh, hotels, and um, all kinds of commercial buildings that shared this city beautiful aesthetic. The chance to explore this, going through the archives and uh, going through corporate records, which was very interesting, and finding out who really facilitated this movement was an exciting adventure that I really couldn't pass up. So that's how it got started. If we look at the city of Cleveland from its very earliest days, it was formed actually as a real estate adventure. It was part of the Western Reserve, which, this is what it was called, the Western Reserve of the state of Connecticut. 
And uh, this was organized by a group in order to sell property to New Englanders who were running into a shortage of land for what was basically an agricultural economy at the time. And the lands of the Western Reserve ran along the southern edge of Lake Erie. And in 1796, Cleveland was then incorporated as the hub of this Western Reserve area. And the city was named, according to legend, as a misspelling of the principal surveyor's name, which was Moses Cleveland. His name was spelled with an A. The A was left out of subsequent spellings. And even as, as Ohio became a state in 1803, there was very little in Cleveland that could be called a public building. It had only a few churches and a public square that was based on New England precedences called Monumental Square. But there were a lot of elements in place to grow the city's industrial base, which was heavy with manufacturing and could support a greatly expanded economy from the mid-19th century on. Cleveland became a major producer of iron with the discovery of iron ore in the upper Lake Superior region in the 1840s. And shortly thereafter, railroading became a major industry along with the invention of the telegraph, which Clevelander Jeff the Wade page it played a major role in consolidating. And in the 1860s, Cleveland had more miles of railroad track than any other state in the Union and saw the rise of the garment manufacturing business starting in the same decade. And then, of course, in 1870, John D. Rockefeller's discovery of oil made Cleveland the center of the world's petroleum industry. Cleveland also spawned a number of industries that are with us today, including Cleveland Cliffs, Sherwin-Williams, Joseph and Feist, and American Shipbuilding. Surprising a lot of people is the information that by the 1920s, Cleveland had become the fifth largest city in the nation. With the wealth that was accumulating in the city, it was understandable that the business elites really wanted a city that had an architectural uh, component that would be as significant as its industrial expansion. It's really interesting to me how you talk about Cleveland as a as a sort of prospecting project, right? That it's this planned community designed to encourage folks to move from the East Coast into the center of the country that there'll be some sort of opportunities there. And then as those opportunities start to arrive, as you point out in the book, and I think as you're, as you're heading in your response there, it becomes a sort of planned community in the sense of, like, now we need to have a specific plan of action for redesigning what the city looks like and conforming it to some kind of ideal of public architecture, public beauty, those kinds of things. A lot of that in the narrative that you tell in the book circulates around the Chicago World's Fair of 1893. So at the turn of the century, as you say, the Cleveland industry is starting to pick up. Folks are starting to move to town in you know significant numbers to work in these different industries. And then the World's Fair happens. What happened there that 
had such a powerful influence on Cleveland architecture and thought about city planning? Well, the Chicago Fair, or what was really named the World's Columbian Exposition of 1893, was a signal event of the 19th century. It was attended by over 27 million visitors and covered almost 700 acres along Chicago's lakefront. 27 million visitors was almost half of the population of the country at that time. The event was overseen by its chief planner, Daniel Burnham. Charles Atwood, an architect, was a designer in chief, and Francis Davis Millet was the director of decoration. The famous designer of Central Park, Frederick Law Olmsted, was in charge of laying out the site and its landscaping. The fair was a continuation of events that had started in Europe decades earlier. Those fairs were largely trade fairs and didn't have a major architectural component. But as they evolved and developed in France later, they did take on an aspect of architectural significance as well as displaying trade goods. Chicago went one better, and more than displaying even the products of the country, which they were trying to celebrate as an extension of how how they were surpassing Europe in manufacture. Chicago's approach was more about the architecture, and that was what was remembered mostly by the people that visited. The buildings were designed by famous architects, including Richard Morris Hunt, George B. Post, Henry Van Brunt and Van Cow, Robert Peabody and George G. Stearns. They were all major West Coast architects, which was surprising because Chicago had its own progressive school of architecture under Louis Sullivan and Frank Lloyd Wright. But the progressives were ignored in this case. And as the individual in charge, Daniel Burnham, he selected mostly the East Coast architects to participate and gave them the major buildings. What kind of buildings did they erect at the fair uh, as part of the celebration? Most of them were familiar with the Beaux-Arts buildings that were prominent in Europe and which were a product of the École de Beaux-Arts, which was the Paris institution that taught a very rigorous program in architectural training and history. So when they all came together, they decided that they would adopt a single style that would unite all the buildings. And uh, the version that they decided on was the Roman period of Beaux-Arts architecture. And they shared, they decided to share certain characteristics, including a uniform height to all the buildings, a symmetrical massing, and deeply carved sculptural decorations. But importantly, they decided on a uniform color. All the buildings were white. And this resonated in most people's imagination because white cities were definitely not what the average city in America was at that time. They were mostly dark and dull and not very clean. 
And so when people saw this, they really were inspired to think, why can't we do something like this in our home setting? That's the way Cleveland movers and shakers felt when they visited the fair. And uh, shortly after that, the Cleveland Architectural Club staged a competition for the grouping of public buildings that they knew they were going to have to build to meet the city's needs. I wonder, could we say a tiny bit more about the aesthetic of the buildings in question? I find it really fascinating that you were talking about a tension in American architecture between progressives like Frank Lloyd Wright and others, and the sort of East Coasters who are looking to the Beaux Arts School and bringing in the white buildings and the deep marble carving. It feels like there's a, t- a larger tension there with the World's Fair, which is, as you've presented it here, it's often presented as this sort of great moment of progress, of, of American you know, superiority over European standards and things. And yet, we're, here we're looking to a French school of architecture. A lot of the, the buildings you know, pictured in your book and, and in, under discussion here are that sort of weird kind of Greco-Roman columns and very classical European-style sculptures. What did the the fair do to say American architectural aesthetics? You know, as, as, was it a real conservative moment, or um, was it a different kind of progress? The style was very popular among architects on the East Coast, but it hadn't really filtrated to the Midwest before this. And uh, people who saw this were really really encouraged by the style. It was something they hadn't really seen, particularly in this volume before. Some of the government buildings on the East Coast were built in this style. They weren't readily known uh, in the Midwest. So when people in Chicago even, who were familiar with the other forms of progressive architecture, saw this, they were impressed. And um, I think probably no one or no group was more impressed than Cleveland, who was already thinking about building projects moving forward. Did the Cleveland Architectural Club, uh, did they send like emissaries to the, to the fair or how did they bring back those ideas uh, and, and start installing them at the heart of city planning in Cleveland? Yeah, we, we don't have any real tally about who from the architectural community attended the fair. We do have uh, some information about people like um, John Hay, who was um, Secretary of State to McKinley, and uh, some of the other significant citizens of the the city who, who did attend and wrote back their impressions. But as far as architects, there's no names that I've found that can be individually associated with it. But the amount of publicity that preceded the fair, even if no one attended, its write-ups in the um, architectural journals, and even the popular newspapers and magazines, it was everywhere. And uh, you could really not be aware that this was going on and what it was going to look like and what it did look like. So whether they attended or not seems to be a secondary consideration. Awareness was definitely key, and they were aware. 
So they had an awareness of what was happening at the fair. How did it start to come together into this very targeted and intentional plan to improve the city of Cleveland? What ultimately starts you know, being referred to as part of the City Beautiful movement? Well, once the Architectural Club had this competition and a number of local architects entered and uh, there was a plan for siting these public buildings in a grouping that would have been similar, at least in concept, not in size, to the fair. That plan went nowhere, but it planted the idea that this is something that Cleveland could actually do. And it wasn't long before they invited the head of planning for the Chicago Fair to come to Cleveland, Daniel Burnham. And he was joined by a couple other architects who got the city's permission to go ahead and make a plan for the buildings that they had in mind. And there, of those buildings, there were six public buildings and possibly a seventh that they were lobbying for that they wanted to include in this organization of buildings that would be sited not far from the uh, Monumental Square and sited on the lakefront in the city. And um, Burnham and company went to work on the plan and uh, they took several years and um, a lot of work to get it pulled together. But they did come out and in August of 1903 and presented it to the city. And it was approved. And it started, although it did take a long time. The last building was not completed until 1930, which is why the book ends with that particular date. In the introduction, I mentioned that the book really credits a joint effort of you know architects and the public and specifically the city's wealthy. And you said, too, in, in response to one of the first questions, uh, that you really enjoyed the scavenger hunt of finding out who was involved with, with the, these projects at different places. Could you say a little more about the kind of mechanics of how these things come about? Who was involved? Uh, and what did they do to make the plan for the city of Cleveland? Well, the Chamber of Commerce played a large role in promoting this. The Chamber in those days was made up of most of the movers and shakers in the city, those that were connected with the industries, those had independent wealth, those that could speak and be heard by others. And they were very, very keen to see this plan realized. And uh, the city government at a certain point became very supportive too. And uh, they gave their blessings to it. And uh, the plan actually was put through the Ohio legislature and given status that was official. So from then on, it was just a matter of meeting with the architects and going over the plans, picking out the individual architects who would design the buildings and having Burnham and his associates ensure that what was being planned was meeting the general 
scope of the project. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Janine DeNoble Love discussing her book, Cleveland Architecture, 1890 to 1930. Let's say a little bit about that that scope of the project. The second part of the book is dedicated really to a catalog that looks at all of the different buildings that were erected as part of this initiative. And you've got them broken down into different, you know, groupings, commemorative buildings, commercial buildings, cultural buildings, etc. Could you just say a little bit about, you know, sort of broadly speaking, how many projects did they undertake as part of this? And what were the shining star examples of, you know, this is, this is one of our big accomplishments? The group plan consisted of six buildings that were realized. A seventh that Burnham was promoting was a massive train station. And he worked on that for years, but could never get the approval of the railroad companies that owned the abutting property. And he did not want to see smoke from the railroad coming up over his beautiful station. So there is kind of a, an empty spot on the mall, the open space that they created around these buildings that proved part of the city beautiful scheme. There's kind of a, a missing link there where the building that was to be the passenger rail station is missing. But the plan for Cleveland's architecture evolved a whole lot more than just the group plan. That's the one that was recognized probably the most in the architectural journals and received the most appreciation from the arts community. But these same aesthetic qualities work their way into the commercial buildings, I think, as we mentioned before. And eventually it worked its way to another group plan, which was constructed about four miles east of the downtown plan in an area called the University Circle. And the downtown plan did not consist of any cultural buildings, just government buildings and commercial buildings. So this left room for a whole group of other buildings connected with cultural institutions to be expanded out there in the university circle. And that's where the Cleveland Museum of Art was built, the Symphony Hall known as the Severance Hall. There were universities out there, Western Reserve University and the Case School of Technology. And eventually there even became uh, medical facilities there. So all of this evolved around the city beautiful aesthetic, but it wasn't as controlled as the downtown plan was. It was more free flowing, but still maintained a lot of open green space for people to enjoy. You know, as you're talking about the different kinds of buildings that are being erected, one thing that I was thinking of is, especially when you mentioned that the original plan didn't include any cultural buildings, is how much the different kinds of spaces that we build, the different kinds of like whole areas that we construct in a city, really say something about what it is that we value and, and what it is that we want to portray about ourselves through our city design. What did the folks involved in these planning operations uh, and the construction of all of these buildings, the design and construction of them, what did they 
seem to want to say about Cleveland with these uh, projects? What it seems that they wanted to say and compare themselves with was East Coast culture, particularly Boston. A lot of the references are to other Boston buildings, and perhaps that just is a reflection of their New England roots. But there are a lot of New England similarities. If you look hard enough uh, or in the Cleveland area, even the um, regular domestic architecture has symbols of a New England architecture. But that's where the center of culture was, more so even than New York, although they definitely compared themselves to New York as far as having similar types of wealth, wealthy individuals. But in matters of culture, Boston was the city that took precedence. So I've mentioned that the book you know, includes a whole back section of, of a look at all of the different buildings specifically, and obviously we're not going to have time to talk about all of those uh, in our discussion today, but I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about one building in particular, uh, which was the first building constructed as part of the 1903 group plan. That's the federal building and courthouse of 1910. Could you say a little bit about where it came from and, and what the architects were trying to accomplish? Well, when this was planned, the group plan had not yet been uh, finalized. The architect was Arnold Brunner. He was not Beaux-Arts trained, which most of the architects of these major buildings were, but he studied at the first architectural school in the US, and that was the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he won a competition. This was a competition that the US government sponsored. It was really a very high honor for Cleveland to have a building of this caliber. This was a typical Beaux-Arts building. It was uh, constructed of very elegant materials. The exterior was both marble and granite. The um, fittings around the windows and such, anything of that order, uh, doors, so forth, were done in bronze. These were materials that held up, and um, they certainly have on all of these buildings over the years. The building was uh, symmetrical, almost symmetrical in shape, which was a hallmark of the Beaux-Arts buildings. And it had both pillars attached that reached three stories of the five-story building and pilasters on the lesser sides, which were flat against the building. This opened in 1910, and um, it probably had the finest collection of sculpture and paintings of any government building in the Midwest. The paintings were done by a collection of artists, uh, Will Lowe, Fred Crowninshield, Siddons Mowbray, Rufus Ogbaum, Francis Miller Davis, Kenyon Cox, and Edwin Blashfield. There were two major sculptural groups by the well-known sculptor, 
Daniel Chester French, and both had to do with forms of justice. And these sat outside of the building at either corner of the main facade. But inside, the building was beautifully decorated. Could you tell us a little bit about the character of the paintings? What were, what were some of the paintings and the murals? Yeah, the paintings all had to do with the theme of the law. In some way, they were all connection, connected to some phase of law adjudication. And um, there were two magnificent courthouses in the building. They held the most magnificent paintings. They were so concerned about this, this building being absolutely correct that they erected a full-scale model of one portion of the building so that all of the decorative elements of the exterior could be tested for satisfaction before it was built. Someone has written that there were over 40 paintings in this building, and I haven't counted them, but I'm not going to dispute that. One of the more interesting uh, collections of paintings was in the postmaster's office. Uh, at one time, this was the headquarters of Cleveland's main post office, as well as serving as its courthouse. And these paintings were done by Francis Davis Millet, and they showed all the ways that the mail had been delivered ever since its beginning in history. The post office building was moved in the early 1930s, and the office was converted into a different space with all of these murals removed. They were apparently put in a storage area in the basement and never saw light again until I inquired about them, knowing that they had been in the building at one time. They declined that they were there. They didn't think that they had ever been there. But I did prevail upon them to look further. They found the paintings, which this time now were badly damaged, but ultimately the General Services Administration, which owned the building, was able to have them restored, and they have now been reinstalled in the building. The building still serves as one of the main courthouses in Cleveland, and it is still in excellent condition for its age. You, know, you mentioned that before about the use of really durable and lasting materials, and now, and now that this building is still sort of in use and serving a purpose uh, for the city of Cleveland. Is that true of other buildings uh, put up during this time? How much of this history can folks go to Cleveland and still see? Actually, there's quite a bit. The main buildings in the group plan, all of them, with one exception, the Board of Education building, uh, still serves its original purpose. And they can still be viewed. You can still tour them uh, with a little more difficulty than it used to be because you have to go through scanning and that sort of thing to enter the building, but they are accessible. The Board of Education building was just recently converted into a hotel, and, uh, but that's the only building in the group plan that's changed its focus. Commercial buildings are a little more susceptible to both change and destruction. 
Uh, there were any number of banks built during this period in Cleveland, and some of them have been destroyed, but many of them are, are still available, at least in a remodeled, if not original form. And those can be seen too. So one advantage to, we haven't spoken about Cleveland's loss of population going from fifth in the country in the 1920s to its present state. And I didn't really want to address the decline in population as far as the city was concerned in this book. But one advantage has been there hasn't been a need for new buildings. And that meant that a lot of the existing buildings were simply mothballed or, or minimally altered and uh, not torn down to create new exotic buildings, as in some cities where growth is more expansive. So it benefited Cleveland in an odd sort of way as far as the buildings were concerned, but didn't do much for its population growth. Do you know what you're, you're talking about things changing their purposes and, and the values of things changing over time, the sort of appearance and disappearance of public artworks? And I can't uh, let conversation with an architectural historian go by without acknowledging that we're in this current moment where public memorials and public art and statues and things have been the, the subject of real vociferous debate, whether it's Confederate monuments or statues to Columbus. I know that there's at least one petition um, petitioning the Cleveland City Council to remove a statue of Columbus from Tony Brush Park. Mm-hmm. What's your take on on all of these conversations about statues and the and the place of buildings in public memory? Well, it's interesting because the monument in Tony Brush Park was actually a gift from Italy. To be placed there. It wasn't something that was generated locally. I think that's true of a lot of statues of Columbus, in fact. I think so. Actually, the city of Columbus, there's proposals to change its name. So I I don't think that's going to go anywhere. That would be um, a difficult thing to, to do. But I have really mixed feelings about their removal. Uh, worse, I feel, is their destruction, though. But in many cases, it's true that the time for commemorating the person or the event of the past, we look on those events differently now from the standpoint of 21st century attitudes. And I think a reevaluation is both right and proper. But it begs the question of what to do with the offending memorials. And... um, We no longer have much respect for these, but getting rid of them entirely seems to destroy part of our history that perhaps needs to be remembered in a different way. And so maybe there would be some way, uh, even possibly through the National Endowment for the Arts, of putting together a commission to determine the best way to deal with these monuments and uh, something that both those that are are for salvaging the monuments and for eliminating them could buy into. I don't think it's insurmountable, but it hasn't been. The attack on the monuments was so sudden that I think it came before anyone had a chance to think through the issues. Yeah. 
I you know it's interesting. I feel like architecture and and memorials are such a complicated question in this regard because it's on one hand it's so easy to you get the argument from the right where they say oh you can't destroy our you know destroying these monuments is destroying history as though the monuments themselves just sort of in their nature teach us anything about history you know like here's the statue of this man now you know something about Christopher Columbus I also understand the sort of frustration of protesters too like I think a lot about that statue of Edward Colston that was toppled in Bristol in England they had actually spent a lot of years trying to change that monument, get a plaque up acknowledging his involvement in the slave trade, you know, like trying to mm-hmm. to go about this with a committee or by modifying it in some way that says, you know, this is a this is a representation of history that is more complicated than just celebrating this person on this pedestal and all always, you know, ended up being thwarted and um, never sort of amounted to any real change. So I can see why you would get so frustrated as to just rip it down and toss it into the river. Yes. Yeah. But I do wonder about that. And I wonder if you have other thoughts about you, your book does such a great job of taking these buildings and, and looking at them and saying, you know, they have this specific history. They came from this specific moment in time. The people who built them had values and wanted to communicate those values to the city that they lived in and to the world at large. What happens when enough years go by that those objects and memorials and buildings no longer elicit that that sort of contextual response on their own and that we have to then read it back onto them somehow? For me, that's a difficult question. I mean, we're, we're still at the point where we're getting rid of Confederate flags in parts of the South. I mean... If that hasn't evolved, are we really ready to tackle the harder questions? So are we going to change the name on every building there is that is named for someone that we no longer admire for generally racial reasons and things that aren't considered appropriate now? A lot of building names have been changed, but it's easier to change the name of a building than it is to destroy a piece of sculpture. And I just wonder if there isn't some residual value, if we really talked about it more openly and without as much emotion, that we could see some value in salvaging some of these figures from the past. I don't have an answer, but I I would love to see more dialogue before decisions are made. Or even just, or even just a way of saying, you know, like like the Colston statue in Bristol, like a way of saying that, because I think one of the things that that you point out with the Columbus statue that makes these questions so complicated is that it's not as though anyone who knew Edward Colston was involved in it, in putting up this statue to him. It was a decision made, you know, by a committee some, you know, decades, hundreds of years later, even, um, you know, in the case of Columbus, for certain. Um, so, like, it it has its own contextual history that reaches back into the 19th century or into the 18th century. Uh, that is part of its, you know, story. You know, and now and now our resistance to them continuing is also a part of its story. Yes. Mm-hmm. So finding some way to attach that story to its continued existence as a monument or as a building or 
um, as a as a thing in the world is is a real challenge. It is a challenge, but I don't think it's insurmountable. And um, explaining both sculpture and buildings and their history. I mean, what, you know, a hundred years from now, will we be looking back and seeing what we'd like to eliminate from our history as it is now? There will be things that need to disappear, be contextually differentiated, but we don't know what they are. So it's an ongoing process. I, I don't know that it will stop with offending, uh, removing the offending pieces at this time. Yeah, I think that you're right, though, that it is going to take some time for us to figure out what to do with these monuments and, and what the role of history is in those in thinking about them. That's not a bad thing. Yeah. That's not a good thing. It's a good thing. You know? Well, and I think that your book really does a great job of of showing us what you know what the historian's eye can can lend to thinking about the spaces we inhabit and the buildings that surround us. And I just really want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat about it with us today. I've really enjoyed learning about Cleveland history from your book and um, talking a little bit about it with you today. Okay, I enjoyed it too. Thank you, Kurt. Janine's book, Cleveland Architecture, 1890-1930, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me, at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to Daniel Trego, Madija Gos, Kylene Cave, and the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books. 